Hello, everyone, and either welcome or welcome back to the Gender Libertarian Podcast. If you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page where you do get early access. Link will be down in the show notes. This week has been a whole week of surprises. Um, Obviously, this is the first post-Super Tuesday weekly roundup, and I want to go ahead and do this kind of in order because, of course, this starts right after I finished recording the last weekly roundup. Of course, welcome to life of political podcasting. News will always break right after you're done recording. So going back to last Sunday, uh, Pete Buttigieg officially dropped out of the Democratic primary and through his support behind Biden, which was kind of surprising considering how well, relatively speaking, Buttigieg had done up until that point. I mean, it's kind of obvious that he wasn't going to get the nomination, but I figured he'd stay in until at least after Super Tuesday. In fact, I didn't think anybody would drop out before Super Tuesday, and I got proven wrong. But that was just a kind of a surprise dropout. So Buttigieg dropped out, and maybe now we can stop getting thought pieces about how he doesn't gay correctly, and we can stop analyzing his relationship with his husband, hopefully, unless somebody picks him as VP. But it was kind of sad to see Pete go. I mean, it was, in a lot of ways, a kind of historic run. I mean, the first openly gay married man to run on a major party's ticket to be the nominee to be president of the United States. And the fact that his sexuality wasn't that big a deal and outside of certain circles, most people were just kind of like, okay, it's a gay married man running to be president of the United States, which, I mean, we're not even quite five years out. This year will be the five-year anniversary of the SCOTUS decision to allow gay marriage nationwide. And who would have thought that not even five years past that decision that you would have an openly gay man married, running to be president of the United States. I feel like I, I feel like that should have been made more of a big deal out of. But on the other hand, I'm kind of glad that it wasn't because it kind of shows that generally speaking, there is an acceptance of gay people in America now. I mean, obviously, there's still work to be done. But the fact that his sexuality wasn't an issue and wasn't brought up all the time, I think really speaks well to where we're at as a country and just kind of how fast this happened. Like, if you remember all the way back in 2008, Obama actually ran on the idea that marriage is between one man and one woman. And now here we are. Like, I just think that's really cool. And I I was sad to see him go, but he dropped out Sunday night. And then Monday night slash Tuesday morning-ish, because this seems to have dropped relatively late on Monday night, um, Amy Klobuchar dropped out. And she threw her support behind Biden. And that one was a little more, I mean, yeah, okay. I mean, she had even less of a chance than Judge did at actually getting a shot at the nomination. And so both of them dropped out, threw their support behind Biden. And so that leads us into Super Tuesday, where Biden overperformed. I mean, nobody expected him to do bad, I don't think, but I don't think anybody expected him to do this well, because here is the list of states that Joe Biden won on Super Tuesday. 
Alabama, Arkansas, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, and Virginia. And kind of the big surprise one in here was Texas, because that was really a toss-up. And going into Super Tuesday, Bernie was polling very well in Texas. And even in the initial results that were rolling in on Super Tuesday, Bernie did have a lead in Texas, but Biden obviously managed to make it up at the end and pull out that win, which is a huge deal because the states that Bernie won, California, Colorado, Utah, and Vermont, which obviously you should win Vermont. Like if it's your home state, you should win that. But he ended up winning California. So the fact that they split Texas and California means that we now actually might have a race, like an actual primary race, which going into Super Tuesday, I don't think anybody really expected that to happen, especially since polling was kind of showing that Bernie was going to take California and Texas. And if that had happened, this is a completely different conversation. In fact, if he would have took California and Texas, he's the presumptive nominee, like straight up there. That would be an almost insurmountable amount of delegates to make up. But speaking of delegate counts, here's where we're at with Biden and Bernie right now. Biden has the lead with 637 delegates. Bernie has 556. Mind you, those two numbers do not include the California delegates because for some godforsaken reason, I don't understand how California does this, but it takes them like weeks to like finalize their vote tallies and to do their delegate counts. So probably not going to know for at least another week, maybe two, what the delegate count is going to be coming out of California. Seeing that Bernie is not that far behind Biden, depending on how California shakes out, he could take the lead in delegates. Again, kind of up in the air, but this is still a very close race. Like it's, I mean, if you're within 100 delegates, it's still, it's tight. Like this is still, still doable for Bernie. I don't think Bernie's done yet. And a lot of people are looking at what happened on Super Tuesday and thinking, well, this is the end of Bernie's campaign. Absolutely not. I mean, Bernie, no matter what happens, unless Biden gets like, a six, 700 delegate lead on this dude, he's not dropping out before the convention. Like he wants a brokered convention. I still maintain that the DNC is going to do everything in their power to not have a brokered convention. But I mean, if the delegate count stays close, then he's going to stay in it. But here's the thing that's really stark to me, and I'm starting to see this kind of pan out. And that's first and foremost, Biden is going to run the table in the Southeast. He's won every state in the Southeast that has had primaries. The only ones that are left are Georgia, which I don't see Bernie winning Georgia, uh, Mississippi, who is having their primary this coming Tuesday, and Florida. Florida is a toss-up to me. I really don't know how to call it this year, but I will say that whoever wins Florida is going to get the nomination. But here's the thing. Say delegate count stays close. Say Bernie does have a plurality over Biden going into the convention. When you start looking at the map and you start looking at the states where Biden beat Bernie, 
I think there's going to be some very, very distinct lines drawn. I think you're going to have Bernie wins in the coastal states, when in the very deep bluish states, and Biden's going to win everything else. So once you start looking at that, and you have to start making the mental math of trying to figure out who you want as your candidate, and you look at that and you say, okay, Bernie couldn't beat Biden in those states. Is he going to be able to beat Trump in those states? And a lot of these states are either red or purple. So... There is an electability argument here to be made for Biden, which there always was. There always has been. It's the whole point of his candidacy is by saying, I am the electable one. I am the one that is not the crazy socialist guy or any of these other people. I'm just old Uncle Joe. Everybody knows me. Just centrist Democrat. And the results of Super Tuesday, I think more than anything, really illustrate that outside of certain pockets, there's just not quite the appetite for Bernie Sanders that Sanders supporters think there is and that sometimes those of us who get kind of stuck in the online political bubble think that there is. Like there is large swaths of even Democrats who live in more conservative states who are it seems, are looking at Bernie Sanders and are like, no, because even some of these states that Biden won, he did not campaign in. He's never even been to on this campaign. He doesn't have offices in those states, but he still won those states. So it's just, it's it, it's going to be quite interesting to see if, if, if there is a brokered convention, what the arguments are going to be for Biden if Bernie does have a plurality of delegates but does not have the 1,991 that you need to win the nomination outright. So, very interesting Super Tuesday. Nobody really expected Biden to do that well. And whether it was from his bounce in South Carolina or whether it was the endorsements, he got a couple other good endorsements. Um, Jim Clyburn endorsed him. And of course, like Pete and Amy endorsed him, uh, Beto O'Rourke endorsed him. I don't know how much people really care about endorsements anymore. I don't, I mean, I'm sure they still serve some kind of function and I'm sure Pete and Amy dropping out before Tuesday helped a bit. What happens to their delegates? I'm not entirely sure. And now you're kind of having this argument of, well, this is what happens when you allow early voting in primaries is what ends up happening if by the time, like, all the Super Tuesday states that allowed early voting and people that voted for Pete and Amy, like, okay, well, now what does their vote mean? Like, there's there's a conversation to be had about that. I'm still a fan of early voting. I just don't know how well that works out logistically in the primaries, especially when, even if you start early voting, like, two weeks earlier or even a week early, when you're talking about Super Tuesday... You could be talking about voting for someone who, unless they are conceivably in the top two, possibly the top three, your person's not going to get the nomination and they may likely drop out. So I think that kind of weighs on people too when they're placing their vote. Like you can have that kind of mental conversation where you're like, okay, well, I like this candidate, but I think this candidate has a better shot of 
winning the nomination. So I put my vote to that person or I think this person's got a better chance of beating Trump. So I'll vote for this person. There's a lot of factors that go on in primary voting, but it's Tuesday was interesting. <laughs> and in the the post Super Tuesday sort of victory speech, um, Biden confused his wife and his sister. <laughs> oh my God, we're going to end up being run by a senile old man. No matter what happens, we're getting someone old and senile. Like everybody who's still running, with the exception of Tulsi, is in their 70s. Their 70s, dude. Like, fuck, you people are old. Like, really old. <laughs> I can't even fathom being in my 70s and wanting to run for president. I'm going to be like, I'm I'm done. Like, hopefully by the time I'm in my 70s, I'm probably done with politics. Probably not. Let's keep it honest. But I'm damn sure not running for freaking president of the United States. But moving on from Super Tuesday and to people who dropped out. Um, On Wednesday, Bloomberg dropped out. Which, I mean, <laughs> this was bound to happen sooner or later. I mean, he, he didn't even get a delegate. Not even one. Not a single delegate. And the highest number that I've seen thrown around for how much money he spent to not get a single freaking delegate. $700 million. This dude was running for what? Three months? Spent $700 million and did not get a single delegate, I never want to hear again about money in campaigns. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> $700 million. And it's not like Bloomberg doesn't have $700 million to spend and probably not miss it, but that is a shitload of money to spend. <laughs> Even if you, like, win, that's a shitload of money to spend. <laughs> that's over half a billion dollars. And Bloomberg still has lots and lots and lots of billions of other dollars, but good God almighty. I No, I don't want to hear anything about anybody being able to buy an election. I don't want to hear anything about Russian bots. I don't want to hear anything about Russians spending, what, $150,000 on Facebook ads and they somehow swayed an election. This dude spent $700 million and couldn't get one freaking delegate. Money does not matter. And this is also a good illustration of the difference between reach versus influence, because during the time that Mike Bloomberg was spending that $700 million, you could not breathe without seeing a Mike Bloomberg ad. You couldn't go on the television. You couldn't go on terrestrial radio. You could not go on YouTube. You could not go anywhere, anywhere without seeing a Mike Bloomberg ad. So you can buy all of the reach in the world that you want, but that does not buy you influence. And that is, I think, a really good lesson for everybody to have learned if there's anything that could be learned from the Mike Bloomberg <laughs> presidential run of 2020, it's that no, actually, you can't buy an election. No matter if you spend over half a billion dollars of your own money, you can't even buy a delegate. God damn. 
I'm just, I had a lot of money to set on fire for nothing. And it was always going to be for nothing. I mean, he had that moment where he was pulling in the double digits and then like the debates happened and that was the end of that. But it was never something where, did anyone ever think that Bloomberg had like a serious shot at getting the nomination? And a story came out the other day about people who were working on the Bloomberg campaign and getting paid, which he was paying people like an exorbitant amount of money to do stuff. Like it was nuts, but that these people were basically taking his money and then either not doing the work or actually going out and canvassing for Bernie Sanders. (laughs) Like it was just, oh my God, just, yeah, I don't, I don't want to hear anybody ever bitch about money in politics ever again, or the idea that you can buy an election. (laughs) Because goddamn if two people didn't try to do it this time around and neither one of them is in the race anymore. So Bloomberg drops out on Wednesday. Then on Thursday, the inevitable finally happens. Elizabeth Warren drops out of the race. So you can imagine what we've been spending our time online since Thursday doing And that is dealing with the fallout from that. And that fallout has been ugly. Needless to say, I mean, if you spend any time online, you already know this, but the Warren stands are already just mashing the hell out of that sexism button. This was all sexism. It's it's everybody's fault for not voting for the woman. She was apparently the most perfectest candidate out there who had a plan for everything, which, first of all, stop me if you think that you've heard this one before, because this is the exact same thing they said about Hillary Clinton. Remember when she was just the most qualified person ever to run for president, and it's just a complete mockery of the system that she didn't win, and that it's just sexism, and you're all a bunch of sexist assholes who just won't vote for a woman, which... This is what we're getting again with Elizabeth uh, Elizabeth Warren. But two points. First off, this is the Democratic primary. So what you're saying is that Democratic primary voters are too sexist to vote for Warren? Like, is that really the argument you want to make right now? (laughs) Didn't think that one through. But the second thing, and this is the one that's really kind of annoying me outside of the whole sexism argument. Did we not just hear for the past three and a half-ish years now that Hillary Clinton is actually the legitimate president of the United States because she won the popular vote over Donald Trump? How the fuck are you going to make that argument for that long and then turn on a dime and say that America is sexist and not ready for a woman president? You just told us that a woman is the legitimate president of the United States because she won the popular vote. Square that. Square that circle. How do those two arguments exist in the same reality? Well, the answer is they don't, because obviously America was ready to elect a woman president. I mean, if you want to ignore the Electoral College and go straight for the popular vote, then yes, Hillary won. So how, how like... Did, are we supposed to forget that 2016 happened? Like, did, did everybody get their minds wiped clean when Donald Trump took the oath of office and everyone just forgets that 
technically speaking, the country did elect a woman president in 2016, but that's just not how our system works. I, I, I can't with that. And a lot of the arguments that are being made along the lines of the sexism thing are these arguments that really bother me in the way that there's this very kind of fatalistic sort of thing, especially on the wake of Hillary and then now Elizabeth, that, well, gosh, it just a woman's just never going to be president, I guess. And everyone keeps saying that they're ready for a woman president, but not that one and not this one. And so it that runs really close up to kind of a biology is destiny argument for me that I don't believe in at all. Like, of course, I think one day there will be a woman president. It's just not going to be one of these two. Okay. I can make the argument that they're both pretty objectively shitty candidates and that there are plenty of other reasons other than the fact that they have a vagina for why they lost. Like Hillary lost because she couldn't do electoral college math, apparently. And Warren lost because a few things. My my theory, two things that killed Elizabeth Warren's candidacy. The first one is Bernie getting into the race. Because before Bernie entered the race, Elizabeth Warren was kind of running in that Bernie lane. It's kind of like Bernie 2.0, the person who's kind of taking his policy positions and running with them, which was all fine and good until Bernie entered the race. And then it's like, well, why would I vote for Bernie Light when Bernie's right here? Like, that kind of killed it. And then the thing that really, I think, just finished it off, especially polling numbers-wise, was after she tried to stab Bernie in the back with, again, the sexism thing. And plenty of Elizabeth Warren fans have been pissed off about people tweeting the snake emoji and calling Elizabeth Warren a snake. I'm sorry. No, I I am with Team Bernie bro on this one. That was shady as fuck. That was a shady move. She, you tried to stab somebody in the back. You tried to plant this story out there that, oh, this one time Bernie told me that a woman can't be president. And like, you, you really tried it. You went there and that was a snake move and you deserve to get called out on it. Like, I don't No, there's, there's no, there's no defending that. And if you want to sit there and be mad at people for pointing out that Elizabeth Warren is a snake, well, I mean, they have a valid point, but to the reactions that have happened since Elizabeth Warren has dropped out. Um, you know how much we've made of the toxicity of Bernie supporters online? And they are. Do not get me wrong. These are some nasty, nasty people. Um, Elizabeth Warren fans have um, not exactly taken this very well. And even outside of the sexism thing and the whole, it's just spawning this whole little woke piece industrial complex about how we have to write these long screeds now about how sexism is blah, 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 blah. yeah they are engaging in some rather bernie bro like activities online as far as just being vile toxic gross disgusting people so yeah it's real interesting how quickly people become the thing that they claim to hate real interesting but the sexism angle just it bothers me because I I hate that. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. Don't pound that button 
unless you have concrete proof, because yes, sexism still is real, but blaming every failure that a woman has on some kind of systemic sexism or the patriarchy or some bullshit like that does none of us any favors. It's just, no, there's plenty of reasons why the Elizabeth Warren campaign failed. One of which probably being it probably should have never existed in the first place, which brings us to the other line of attack, which is that, well, this happened because the media ignored and erased Elizabeth Warren. And I'm just like, what in the actual fuck are you talking about? The whole reason this woman ran is because the media gassed her up. How many times, how many times have I done Democratic debate recaps where I've pointed out that Elizabeth Warren was allowed all the time, allowed to just run over everybody else on stage, allowed to pretty much do whatever the hell she wants, got tons and tons of media coverage. In fact, the only time they stopped covering Elizabeth Warren was when her poll numbers started to drop, which, I'm sorry, did you guys want the media to cover that? Did you want them to put big-ass stories out there about how her poll numbers are dropping? Like, I don't know. I view that as them actually doing her a favor by not putting her out there like that at that time and just kind of keeping their mouths shut about that part, actually. But it's just, oh my god. And it's just going to keep on going on and on and on. And it's just, I, oof. Yeah. And it's funny because... <laughs> Nobody really seemed to react this way when Amy Klobuchar dropped out, I'm just saying. Even though she also got the coveted New York Times endorsement. Both of the people that the New York Times endorsed are no longer running in the race. Because neither one of them got any actual traction. Holy shit, this is why I say I don't know if endorsements even really mean anything anymore. I mean, I, I people are still going to do them, but... Good Lord. The other kind of thing that has come out since Warren has dropped out, and you can take this with a grain of salt. I tend to believe this in certain areas and certain states. And that is, did Elizabeth Warren staying in, going into Super Tuesday and not dropping out and endorsing Bernie, which by the way, as of this recording, because I I always have to preface this now. As of this recording, Elizabeth Warren has not endorsed anybody. But if she would have dropped out and endorsed Bernie, then things might have turned out a little differently on Super Tuesday than they did. Um, I mean, one can never know if Elizabeth Warren wasn't an option on Super Tuesday, what her voters would have done. I, I'm of two minds of this. And this is always one of those times where I think the best course of action here would be for everyone to either go read or reread Brian Kaplan's The Myth of the Rational Voter to try to understand that trying to figure out these things doesn't always make a ton of sense. Because to me, I would think, and I think this way because I am a policy person, like I don't feel the need to connect to a politician on some kind of deep emotional level or spiritual level or want to be their friend or want to go have a beer with them or relate to their backstory or any of that. All I care about is your policy positions. That's it. Like, I don't, I don't have to like you. Like, I don't have to want to be your friend. So me looking at things like that, I would think that Warren fans would go to Bernie's side just solely based on policy. 
That being said, I know I am weird and different. And there has obviously been a ton of friction between Team Bernie and Team Liz. And there are people that do make the, I don't think, illegitimate argument that her voters would then go to Biden if she was not available out of spite towards Bernie or for other various and assorted reasons that, I mean, policy-wise, that move makes no sense. But knowing that not everybody looks at things that way and most people look at things in a more emotional way, in a less rational way, I can understand how this vote might have broke down if Elizabeth Warren wasn't there. I will maintain, though, she cost him. It was fairly close in Texas. Um, Biden eked it out with a little over 69,000 votes, and Elizabeth Warren got, I believe it was 276,000 and change. So her being there might have cost Bernie Texas. And there are people who have made that same argument for states like Massachusetts, states like Oklahoma, where it was close. And maybe if she'd have dropped out, then Bernie would have had a better Super Tuesday than he did. I don't know. I I mean, like I said, it's so hard to know these things. But I mean, I just look at the numbers, especially for Texas, and I'm like, yeah, she might have cost him Texas, which might very well end up costing him the nomination in the long run. We shall see. But I don't feel like Bernie fans are completely misplaced in their opinion that her being there cost him. I mean, who knows? Like I said, nobody can really know what's in anybody else's heart. But needless to say, there is no love right now between Team Bernie and Team Liz. And this is not a riff I see healing anytime soon, which means I don't know what Elizabeth Warren's plans are going forward. It really felt like for a minute she was angling for that VP nod, which even I pointed out, like, there's no way that Team Bernie is going to let that happen. Bernie supporters would never, ever, ever in a million years support that woman being on a ticket with Bernie just because of all the shit that's happened. But it seems like that's what she was angling for, but I don't think that's going to happen now. So I don't know what, I, I don't know. It's, I'm very confused by her campaign overall. It seems like she had people running it who weren't giving her the best advice. She did end up going woke, as it were, and going broke. <laughs> but it just, I don't know. It it did not take off. Like, she never, it just never happened. As much as the media tried to make it happen, Elizabeth Warren just never happened. And perhaps there's a lesson in there, too, about media-generated candidates and how much traction they can get. I think there's, if if anybody is in the mood to learn anything after the 2020 election, because God knows they were not in the mood to learn anything after the 2016 election, there are lessons to be learned here. Hopefully, maybe they will be learned. I'm not holding my breath, though, but in kind of a wrap-up of this past week's primary news, and File this under the who gives a damn category. Uh, Kamala Harris endorsed Joe Biden. Whatever. Nobody likes you, Kamala. Like, why? Just go. Go away. Nobody likes you. But next week, 
we have the March 10th primaries, which that will be Idaho, Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, and Washington. Obviously, the two biggies there are going to be Michigan and Washington. And looking at this slate, um, oof, this might be a bit rough for Bernie. I mean, he would have to win either Michigan or Washington. I, I mean, maybe Washington. I can see it. I don't know about Michigan. Michigan's going to be a toss-up. Uh, pretty much all the rest of these I can see going to Biden, to be completely honest. But we we still have a couple more rounds of primaries to get through. But yeah, this is apparently actually now a race. Which leads us to the next debate, which is on the 15th. Which, at this point, it will be Bernie and Joe. And no Tulsi. Here's what happened. Um, according to the last debate's qualification rules, Tulsi would have qualified for the March 15th debate because she does actually have two delegates. So the criteria was that you had to have at least one delegate to make it onto the debate stage. She has two. Um, the DNC cranked up the qualifications after Super Tuesday, and that has caused... A whole lot of conspiracy theorizing about not wanting Tulsi on the stage. And I can see both sides of this. I can see Tulsi people being very pissed off because, I mean, she met the qualifications and she should be on the stage. That being said, she's not going to get the nomination. It's going to be either Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders. And so people have made the argument, does she really belong on the stage? Does she really need to be there? Is there any point in it? I think there's a point in it, but I also, like, I can see both sides of the debate, but this is kind of the DNC figuring out a way to screw over Tulsi once again to keep her off the debate stage. Yeah, in insert your theories here. On the bright side, I am actually kind of looking forward to the March 15th debate, if for nothing else than the fact that there will only be two people on stage. So maybe we might actually be able to have some kind of substantial discussions. I'm not entirely sure what the time frame is going to be for this debate. I don't know if they're doing one hour or two. Um, actually, I lied. Hold on. I do know this. It is, yeah, it's going to be two hours. It's on the 15th. It's from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m., which, by the way, the 15th is a Sunday. Thanks, guys, because this is what I want to spend my Sunday nights doing, watching a debate. But at least, um, I mean, maybe there'll be something interesting to come of it. <sighs> well, I mean, at this point last week, I didn't even think there was going to be a point in having a March 15th debate because I didn't think there'd be anybody else on the stage other than Bernie. So, hey, color me wrong and color me surprisedly wrong. <laughs> I don't even know what to say about this at this point. It's going to get very interesting, though. And I... Ooh. It, it's going to get messy. It, and it's going to get precisely as messy as Bernie Sanders is willing to make it be. I mean, this is going to be all on Bernie. Whether he wants to push the issue, if he does have the plurality of delegates, or... I mean, I don't think anybody's going to win outright. I, I'm not seeing the math work out on that, but yeah, it's going to be what, 
it's going to be messy. And the DNC is going to be putting a lot of pressure on somebody to drop out and support the other somebody. And I think in the next possibly week, week and a half or so, we'll have a better idea of who's going to get pressured to drop out and support who. And if it is a situation where Bernie is once again pressed to drop out of the race and support the Democratic establishment candidate, Bernie Sanders or Sanders fans are going to walk. They're going to walk away from the Democratic Party, which good for them. I mean, I can't say that they would be wrong. I mean, I, I would not be able to blame them in the least. I completely understand the sentiment as somebody who was a Ron Paul supporter. I get knowing how it feels to have the party that your candidate is running for screw over your candidate. I get it. I get walking away. So if that's what ends up happening, so be it. Maybe then we can start actually having a conversation about third parties in this country. Maybe the DSA will actually become a political party. I don't know. But if that happens, Sanders fans have already made it very clear that they're not, they ain't doing it again. They're not holding their noses and voting for the establishment candidate again, especially after getting screwed when they did it for Hillary. Like these people are mad and I can't say that it's unjustified. I mean, I, I do not like their candidate. I do not like their policy positions. Obviously, they run in the exact opposite of what my policy positions are, but I understand how they feel right now. I get it. I can sympathize with them. I can kind of empathize with them. And it's kind of sad because anybody who was part of the Ron Paul revolution, you had to be looking at the Bernie Sanders revolution and being like, yeah, I go for it, guys. But let me tell you how this is going to end. And it's looking like it's going to end exactly that way where their candidate, I mean, not that Bernie Sanders was ever technically a Democrat. He's always been an independent, but your candidate breaks away from the party that they ran with and that candidate's supporters leave the party too. I mean, there's a lot of people who were Republicans or at least Republican leaning or Republican voters who, after the whole Ron Paul thing, went full libertarian or just went full independent and just have nothing to do with the Republican Party anymore. And it's understandable. And I think it's going to happen again with Sanders supporters if he does not get the nomination this year. So obviously more to report on that next week and probably the week after that and the week after that because we live in hell and everything is an election cycle. We never really stopped the election cycle from 2016. I think it was like like baseball. Like we took a two-month break and then like the season started again. <laughs> but moving on from that to a story that hasn't gotten a lot of attention and I'm kind of... I don't know why. Maybe it's just the amount of sheer stuff going on right now. But the president, or at least the president's re-election campaign, has filed at this point three lawsuits. One against New York Times, one against the Washington Post, and one against CNN about specific pieces that each one of those outlets ran that alleged the the Russian like Russiagate kind of collusion thingamajig. Here's the thing. And let me try to back up and explain a couple things real quick before we get into the discussion of 
why this is something that really needs to be talked about a hell of a lot more than is actually being talked about right now. To start, let me explain the concept of a SLAP lawsuit to you. And if you don't know what that is, SLAP is actually an acronym for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. And what a SLAP lawsuit is, is it's a lawsuit that's intended to censor, intimidate, and silence critics by burdening them with the cost of a legal defense until they abandon their criticism or opposition. Basically, what happens when somebody files a slap suit is the plaintiff is not expecting to win this lawsuit. That's not the point of the lawsuit. The point of it is for somebody to sue somebody else because, like in this case, Trump is suing these outlets for running opinion pieces, which that's another thing. These were opinion pieces. They were not straight news pieces, and they were all labeled as such. Running opinion pieces that alleged the collusion, and he doesn't like that. So now he's suing these these outlets, not in order to win the case, because there's really no way to win this case. I mean, they're opinion pieces. It's not straight news. You can't say that somebody published falsehoods in an opinion piece because it's somebody giving their opinion. It's not straight news. It's a completely different animal. And I know the line has been blurred a lot over the past couple of years between opinion and straight news. And sometimes that firewall is not as strong as it should be. But when something is distinctly labeled an opinion piece, I mean, you can try to file for libel or defamation, you're not going to get very far. But that's not the point of a slap lawsuit. And that's not the point of what Trump's trying to do. What Trump's trying to do is to both annoy and cost these outlets money pursuing this case, which, I mean, we're talking about New York Times, Washington Post, and CNN. They've got time and money and legal teams to do this and would probably be more than happy to go through a whole legal process with Trump, including discovery, if these cases were to actually go forward and not be thrown out of court. I can see one of those three outlets being like, all right, I mean, we already have lawyers on retainer. We've got millions of dollars. Fuck it. Let's do this. The point is, though, to intimidate other outlets who do not have those resources into not publishing certain views or not publishing certain things that, in this case, would be critical of President Trump. This is a big fucking deal. This is not okay. The president's re-election campaign is suing big media outlets in order to create this environment that says, if you publish something that we don't like, we will sue you. And it doesn't matter whether you're going to win the lawsuit or not. The point is to either keep an outlet from doing it at all, period. Or if you say you did sue a smaller outlet who didn't have the resources to do that, you make as part of the condition of dropping the lawsuit, you pull the piece. Like, this is kind of fucked up, people. Like, this is not okay. <laughs> And I don't know why more people aren't talking about it because it's just like, this is literally the president's re-election campaign filing frivolous lawsuits to try to affect coverage of President Trump and to affect the sorts of opinions that opinion writers publish about President Trump. 
I, I, guys, um, it, it's not exactly a 1A violation, but it's not good either. Like, this is, this is bad. Filing frivolous lawsuits is bad. Filing frivolous lawsuits to silence media outlets is bad. Like, I, I, oh my god, yes, guys, the, the, this is happening. And what is kind of interesting to me, especially in light of this not getting a lot of play, is what is getting a lot of play are some comments that Chuck Schumer made about Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. Now, these are comments that were made at a pro-choice rally that was being held outside of the Supreme Court because they are hearing a case right now that does relate to abortion rights. And just for the sake of clarity, here are, well, I'm trunicating some of this because the lead up to it isn't particularly all that important. Here is what Chuck Schumer said. Over the last three years, women's reproductive rights have come under attack in a way we haven't seen in modern history. From Louisiana to Missouri to Texas, Republican legislatures are waging a war on women all women, and they're taking away fundamental rights. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what hits you if you go forward with these awful decisions. People have made a huge deal out of this, and to me, this kind of brings up the whole literally but not seriously, but seriously but not literally discussion that we always seem to have with Trump. I don't, I mean, I'm not taking Chuck Schumer literally here. I don't think he's going to do anything like there's really nothing he can do. I mean, Supreme court justices have lifetime appointments. It's not like you can like make them leave the court. Like what, what are you going to do Schumer? Like there's literally nothing you can do, but people wanted him censured for this or some kind of punishment. And I'm sitting here like, okay, we can have this discussion about what, Schumer said and whether or not that was appropriate or not it's not you should not threaten Supreme Court justices that's not cool but if we're looking at degrees of magnitude here if I'm going to compare what Chuck Schumer said during a pro-choice rally in front of the Supreme Court and what the Trump campaign is doing with their slap lawsuits this is a no-brainer I'm way more concerned about Trump than I am about Chuck Schumer Chuck Schumer can go scream into the void. Supreme Court justices are appointed for life. There's nothing you can do. Go, go cry more. The Trump campaign filing frivolous lawsuits against media outlets who published opinion pieces that he doesn't like. Yeah, that's way, way worse and way more deserving of attention. But it's just like nobody's, nobody's really picked up on this story. And I'm just like, what? Especially like, Civil libertarians, where are you at? My free speech people, where are you at? (laughs) Even my 1A people, even though, like I said, this isn't a 1A issue, it runs kind of close. It's along those lines. It's not Congress making a law, but it is the president trying to use the judicial branch to influence what media outlets do and do not publish. Where are you at, guys? Where's the outrage? And I know it, it's hard to keep track of all of the things that we're supposed to be mad at, but this one seems to really deserve a lot more attention and a lot more anger than what it's getting, more so than Chuck Schumer. I, I just, I don't care. I don't care. Censure him, don't censure him, do whatever. It, it's comments in a pro, pro-choice rally. What, I, I, whatever. 
This is more important. This is the president trying to use the judiciary to silence media outlets. Yeah. So maybe going forward in the next couple of weeks, somebody will start paying attention to this story, hopefully. But at least now, you know about it. So at least there's that. And that pretty much sums up this long, crazy week. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. I, uh, I don't know what the next couple of weeks are going to bring. It's going to be interesting. Like I said, I'm very curious to see how this upcoming round of primaries go. And then, like I said, we have debate. And then I, I don't have offhand the primary dates for Florida, but that's going to be the one to watch. It's going to come down to Florida again. Damn it. <laughs> My home state forever messing everything up and deciding things. <laughs> and this is why I hate paper ballots, but that's a whole nother story. Signed a 2000 voter from South Florida. <laughs> Please don't bring back paper ballots, people. Don't, don't do that to me. But at this point, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. So if you did make it this far, as always, thank you for listening. And if you do like this, please rate, comment, and subscribe. You can find me on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, YouTube, and on my Patreon page. Take care and until next time.